You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 96. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, and I'm here to be your guide into realms of fantasy and wonder. You can find more of my work at chrislaster.org and metamorcity.com. Each week, I work on fresh new fiction that hasn't been heard anywhere else and serve it up to you, my faithful listeners. Along the way, I keep you up to date on my life and my writing. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you a story from Metamore City's history. As I mentioned in Things Unseen, the world of Metamore suffered two great wars in the 19th century. The first of these global wars began in the year 1832 of the Christos Reckoning. On the Allied side of that war, serving in the Imperial Aeronautic Corps, was a young wizard named Liam Artaxis. You know him as the Master Wizard Artax, but this tale comes from long before he was a master of anything. I hope you enjoy it. Fire in the Sky A Tale of Metamore City By Chris Lester April 7th, 1833, Christos Reckoning. 2,000 feet above Aspaku, Irambi. Liam was certain of two things. The first was that he was going to die, probably in the very near future. The second was that whoever had come up with the idea of using airships in war was a bloody great idiot. Interceptors, two o'clock high, the lookout shouted. Three flights, contact in sixty seconds. The captain's voice came from the enchanted speaking tubes an instant later. Point defenders to the starboard bow. Gunners, stand by to return fire. Liam spared a glance toward the quarterdeck. The captain stood calmly behind the helmsman, his posture erect, his double-breasted blue uniform impeccable. Even at maximum speed, with the hot desert wind whipping across the deck like an angry sylph, his tricorn hat remained undisturbed. Liam suspected that the man had glued it to his head with an adherence charm. Even he's afraid he'll not give sign of it, he thought enviously. And I, with my innards turned to jelly. Major? one of the other point defenders asked. After a moment, Liam realized the man was talking to him. Nigh a lieutenant any more, he reminded himself. Nigh since poor Major Holyfield got sent home. What was left of him? Liam shook himself and gestured toward the starboard bow. First rank, set forth screens, he said. Second rank, reinforce flame wards on the capsule. Third rank, stand by to counterspell. Move! The airman scrambled to obey, and Liam took his place in the front rank along the railing of the bow. He could see the enemy interceptors coming in fast, the Waziri pilots driving their enchanted carpets as fast as their will could take them. Behind each pilot sat an Espakan sorcerer, ready to call down destruction on the Allied airships. The other ships in the flotilla stretched out to the aft and port of Liam's, twenty-four in all, 
each one surmounted by a ridiculously vulnerable lift capsule filled with flammable hydrogen gas. The task of protecting that capsule fell to Liam and his men in the point defense unit. If they failed, the best he could hope for was that the fall would kill him before the fire did. Yes, he thought again. He was quite sure he was going to die. Liam took out his focusing implement, a small bronze chalice engraved with arcane symbols. He filled it with a little water from his flask, trying not to let his hands shake too much. Around him, the air mages drew their silver daggers, and the fire mages raised slender wands, while the earth mages gripped the crystals that hung around their necks. Liam felt a stab of irritation at them all. None of them had to worry about spilling their casting tools. All of the ship's other water mages were laying the fire suppression spells around the capsule, but Liam's unique talents had put him on point defense. Screens up! Liam shouted and together the casters drew up their mana. Circular force fields sparkled into existence all across the bow of the ship, each one shimmering in a different color that matched the aura of its caster. They fitted the screens together like the shields of an ancient phalanx, each one overlapping with its neighbors. Seconds later, the enemy sorcerer started firing. A torrent of glowing orbs and shafts of light lanced out toward the allied flotilla, They splashed against the screens with colorful bursts and a sound like a cannon barrage. The impacts shook Liam's shield and sent a sympathetic shock through his arms, but he braced his feet on the deck and raised his chalice high, channeling more energy into the spell. Below decks, the six-pounder forward guns barked their answer to the attack. Their canister shot sent a torrent of lead balls, chains, and jagged bits of metal raining out across the sky. The carpetmen unfortunate enough to be caught in their path were literally torn to pieces, falling to the earth in a spray of blood. But the Waziri pilots were nimble, far more agile than even the smallest airship, and most evaded the assault. They peeled off in all directions and wove through the Allied fleet like a mob of sparrows around a hawk. Liam touched his fingertips to the water in his chalice, turning his focus on his third eye. An array of possible futures spread out before him like a deck of cards, each one subtly different, each less than a minute ahead. He let each one flash before his inner sight, looking for the ones that seemed most solid, most likely. His eyes snapped open. Shift the screens to eight o'clock low, he shouted. Quickly now. The point defenders ran to the port side of the ship and angled their screens downward. A squadron of twelve carpets had dived below the fleet, and were now coming back up on a steep angle, stabbing right through the center of the Allied formation. The sorcerers lashed out in all directions at the airships around them. Liam's unit blocked all of the blasts thrown their way, but three other airships were not so lucky. One was hit in the capsule and began leaking gas, sinking out of formation. Two were hit in their aft propeller assemblies and went dead in the air, their capsules now at the mercy of the winds. The carpets broke away from the flotilla and flew off. This time they did not circle around for another pass. Liam knew what that meant. His suspicions were sickeningly confirmed when a muffled boom, boom, boom erupted in the distance. Liam saw tiny puffs of smoke appear at ground level. They were coming into range of the target's defensive artillery. The first volley of shells exploded too high, or too low, or too far ahead of the flotilla to do any damage. 
Trying to hit an airborne target was always difficult. But they'll keep trying, you can be sure of that. The captain's voice came again from the speaking tubes. Now approaching the first target site. Bombardiers, prepare to drop. Gunners, run out the starboard guns. A flurry of activity filled the decks under Liam's feet. Gun ports were opened, and the ship's big 32-pounders extended their noses all along the starboard side. As he led his unit back to the bow, Liam saw the enemy capital spreading out before them. Ahead, into starboard, he saw plumes of black smoke rising skyward. The enemy foundries, where Espaku forged the steel for its armored battleships. We should not be here. This is madness. The Allied flotilla was deep inside enemy territory. Eight thousand miles from Metamore, more than a thousand miles from their nearest forward base. Even if every bomb and every shell found their targets, they could not hope to destroy the Espakan war machine. No, this was about morale, not logistics. The Allies had to prove to the Espakan people that they were not invulnerable. A strike here, in the heart of their homeland, would shake their confidence in their supposedly invincible military. Espaku might start to question its role in this insane war that had spanned more than half the world. Of course, Liam and his fellow airmen would probably be dead long before anybody knew whether it had worked, but they'd known this was a one-way trip before they started. Another boom of the artillery cannon came from the ground below, and this time a flash of prophetic insight flickered over Liam's vision. Screens to two o'clock high, he shouted. Go, go, go! The airmen scrambled into position at the forward starboard quarter of the ship, swinging their four screens up to cover the capsule from above. No sooner had they gotten in place than a whistling shell soared into view. It hit the top of its arc less than a hundred feet overhead, hovered there for an instant, and then exploded with a crack of thunder. The torrent of deadly shot splashed off of the screens and ricocheted in all directions. A few of the lead bearings found their way through gaps in the screens and buried themselves in the deck, throwing up splinters of wood and making the nearby airmen jump and swear. Mercifully, none of them struck the capsule. Hold position, Liam shouted, just before a rapid barrage of artillery fire sounded below them. They found our range, he thought, and now they'll let us have it. Liam gritted his teeth and poured as much energy as he could manage into his portion of the shield. How many shells had been fired? How many seconds until they reached the fleet's altitude? The shells did not all arrive in the same moment, but as soon as the first half-dozen or so sailed into view, Liam no longer had time to worry about the rest of them. The detonations shook the airship and set Liam's ears ringing. A storm of hot metal sprayed across the ship, and men screamed and fell all around him as the shot tore through their ranks. Gaps in the forescreen began to appear, as point defenders died or lost concentration on their spells. Whether from good luck or unconscious foresight, Liam was unharmed. He spared a moment between volleys to take stock of the ship and its capsule. His heart sank. Half a dozen jagged holes, each about the size of a man's fist, were fluttering across the first two cells of the capsule. The fire suppression teams were already at work, covering the damaged area with protective water spells. Their efforts had kept the hydrogen from catching fire, but the gas was still escaping quickly. The ship would lose altitude, 
bringing it into closer range for the city's defenders. If someone didn't patch the leaks, the ship would eventually crash. The captain must have seen the problem, too, because his voice came through the speaking tubes a moment later. Capsule repair? Cells one and two, starboard side, he bellowed. Gunnery sergeant, give me a ranging shot on primary target, now! A heavy boom rattled the deck, and one of the twenty-eight-pound iron shells went sailing off into the distance. Liam didn't have time to see whether it reached the target. A gang of crewmen arrived to carry his injured men below decks, and for the next several seconds he was busy separating the dead from the wounded. "'Close ranks!' he shouted to the surviving defenders. "'They'll be hitting us again as soon as they reload!' They formed up around him, about two-thirds of his original complement, and wearily raised their wands and daggers and crystals toward the sky. The four screens popped back into existence, but each had to cover a wider area than before, and as a result the screens were thinner and weaker. Liam wondered how many of them would hold. "'Gunnery sergeant!' the captain shouted again. "'Raise starboard guns by three degrees. Fire another ranging shot and stand by to fire all guns if she lands true!' Within seconds another blast thundered below decks. From his position at the starboard bow, Liam saw the cannonball sail out in a gentle arc, descending toward the massive concrete walls of the foundry. The ball was too far away to see when it struck home, but it kicked up a small puff of dust and smoke that Liam could just barely make out through the haze of pollution surrounding the target. "'Fire!' the captain bellowed. "'Full broadside, fire!' The response was immediate. Thirty-one of the big guns fired nearly in unison— a deafening roar that struck Liam like a blow to the head. The ship rocked to port under the force of the blast, and two of Liam's younger men stumbled and fell, their force screens winking out with the lapse in their concentration. The world to starboard disappeared in a cloud of foul gray smoke. Stand ready, Liam barked. They'll not let that go unanswered. Above Liam's ship, the rest of the fleet fired their own broadsides at the foundry, adding to the chaos of smoke and noise. Liam tried to focus past the din, to turn both his natural and arcane senses to detecting the next attack. There! The artillery below sounded again, louder now as the flotilla was closer to the target. Liam's ship was also about fifty yards nearer to the ground than the rest of the fleet, thanks to the gas they had lost from the last attack. That drop in altitude likely saved their lives— as the smoke around them thinned, Liam watched a barrage of shells sail past the bow of the ship and continue their deadly flight upward, directly into the middle of the fleet. He did not see what happened next. It was hidden by the capsule hanging above them, but he heard the crack of the explosions as the shells detonated, and a split second later, the whoosh of a hydrogen cell igniting. Oh, no. All hands brace! Hard to starboard and down, the captain called. Liam and his defenders scrambled to grab hold of masts, staylines, railings, anything that might support their weight. Liam had just gotten his arms around a cable when the ship lurched and the deck dropped away beneath him. Timbers groaned as the captain worked the ship's pectoral sails, sending her listing nearly onto her side. In the same moment, vents opened all along the port side of the capsule the expelled gas pushing the ship further to starboard, and, incidentally, 
making her drop even further away from the rest of the fleet. Liam cursed and held on for dear life. The ship righted itself, just seconds before a mass of flaming wreckage plunged through the space it had previously occupied. It fell in slow motion, still buoyed up by a few cells of the capsule that had not yet ruptured. The doomed ship plunged into the desert sands below and disappeared in a fireball, as the altitude fuses on the bombs all went off at once. Poor bastards, Liam thought. I hope it was quick. Gunnery sergeant, the captain barked. Reload main guns and stand by. Bombardiers, release full payload on my mark. The ship juddered and slewed to starboard. They passed through the smoke and the foundry reappeared, now directly ahead of them. Much closer to the ground now, they seemed to be moving faster, though that was probably an illusion. Mark, the captain said. Bombs away! The ship jumped then, as it was suddenly liberated of two thousand pounds of ordnance. The loss of weight restored the ship's positive buoyancy, and they began to climb. Liam did not see the bombs strike their target, but he heard the distant explosions as they pulled the way into the sky. To the stern, men! Liam cried. They made their way aft as fast as they dared, keeping a wary eye out for the enemy's counterattack. As Liam reached the top of the stairs to the quarterdeck, the captain caught his gaze, giving him a steely-eyed nod of approval. Liam bowed his head briefly in deference, then continued on toward the stern of the ship. Mounted atop the housing for the great steam-driven propellers, the poop deck gave a commanding view of the land and sky behind them. The first thing Liam saw was the foundry receding beneath them. Many of the bombs and shells had apparently struck home, and the vast building was now bleeding black smoke from about a dozen new holes in its steel and concrete skin. Several of the outlying structures had been destroyed outright, and the adjoining rail yard had taken heavy damage. The spakes'll be a long time cleaning this mess up. Liam's eyes turned skyward, looking for the rest of their fleet. The airships had been scattered in the battle, driven apart both by evasive maneuvers and by the changes in their relative buoyancy as they dropped bombs and sustained damage. He did a quick count. Eighteen of their twenty-four airships had survived the initial bombing run. Better than we'd hoped, he thought. But the day was far from over, and they were a very long way from home. A voice came again from the speaking tubes, but this time it carried the distinct magical resonance that told Liam it was coming from another ship. All ships, this is Admiral Ballantyne. Form up and proceed to secondary target. Captains, report any unused ordnance. Those ships that have already dropped their payloads form a defensive screen around the rest of the fleet. Oh, now that's a fine thing, Liam thought sourly. We hit our target, and now our reward is to be bait for the rest of you dossers. He was about to head back to the quarter-deck for further orders when a rush of prophetic images flooded his senses. Flames, explosions, bodies falling from the sky like hailstones, claws stained red with blood, teeth like long, jagged crystals, darkness. He hit the deck hard, and the sudden pain knocked him back into the present. Two of his airmen were at his sides in a moment, helping him back to his feet. All right, Major, one of them asked. Liam shook his head, still stunned. No, 
he said at last, his voice shaking. No, laddie, I'm not all right. We're heading straight into a trap. And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. I'll be back next week with part two of Fire in the Sky. Jack London said, You can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. So, find yourself a nice heavy stick and follow me to our weekly writing report. I wrote 2,959 words this week, over the course of 5.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 515 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 137 days without breaking my chain. This week I worked on Fire in the Sky, which I had started a few years ago and then set aside. A few weeks ago I asked my Patreon Creators Council which story I should work on next, because I had several stories in different states of completion. Overwhelmingly, they chose Fire in the Sky. Turns out, people want to hear more about Artax. So, as soon as I was done with my Metamore City Live script, I opened the file back up and got started. The story isn't finished yet, but I made a lot of progress on it this week, and I'm hoping to have it done before next week's installment comes out. I'm expecting this story will be a short one, probably around 6,000 words. And now, the feedback. Hey Chris, it's Meredith Torres. I hope you're doing well. I just listened to Nemesis, and I really, I really enjoyed it. It's kind of funny how something that's basically semi-autobiographical can end up having a really good lesson to it. And I mean, I didn't even know anything about Poet Dill until he had passed. But hearing people talk about him, he sounds like a pretty amazing person. I feel like this tribute that you wrote is really beautiful. The anger and the grief at the same time and the reasoning behind it. I mean, I know that it's not exactly autobiographical, but I can tell that you channeled your feelings into this and that that sense of loss that comes from realizing that something that you have been relying on is gone and you can't do things that way anymore. It's just such a huge revelation, and it sucks that it, you know, comes from tragic loss. But I thought that the story was a really well-done story on its own, but I think I probably wouldn't appreciate it nearly as much if I didn't know the, the reasons behind it. Hi, Sarah. It's great to hear from you again. And you're right. Nemesis is a story where you have to know the real-world context before you can appreciate what the story is really trying to do. That's why I devoted a lot more time to the introduction in that episode than I usually do. But anyway, I thought that was a really, really great, beautiful tribute, so awesome. I'm looking forward to listening to Maternal Instinct because I like creepy, weird stuff. And, oh, you said in this episode, that episode, you said Rough Rock Valeria and the Ghostly Bride instead of uh, Vampire's Bargain. I'm like, wait a minute, that was last year. Yes, you got me. I screwed up the name of my own audio drama. I didn't notice the mistake until the next morning, when I was listening to the episode while I was out walking the dogs. And I could go back and change it, but frankly, it's not that big a deal. This year's drama is called Rafa Kaliri and the Vampire's Bargain, 
and if you want to see it live, plan to be at Balticon on Sunday, May 28th. Tickets are on sale at Balticon.org. I actually meant to pick up a copy of uh, Tales of the Sesquarianter last Balticon, because I think there were uh, paperbacks there, but anyway, maybe there will be more this time. I will be at a dealer's table this year, with Scott Pond Designs and a bunch of other awesome podcasting peeps, but I do not know if we will have any copies of Tales of the Tesla Ranger on sale there. I would recommend ordering a copy off Amazon and then bringing your copy to the convention, because a lot of us who wrote stories for it are going to be there, and we'd be more than happy to sign it for you. A link to buy your copy will be in the show notes. Anyway, I'm going to end that there. Hopefully this whole thing went through. I have no way of telling. Good night. You take care. Bye. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, leave me a review on iTunes. Or visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a monthly pledge to support the show. Even a small donation makes a big difference. That's our show for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.